For as the light of the morning cometh out of the east, and shineth even unto the west, and covereth the whole earth, so shall also the coming of the Son of Man be. Therefore sanctify yourselves, that your minds become single to God, and the days will come that you shall see him. For he will unveil his face unto you, and it shall be in his own time, and in his own way, and according to his own will. This is unveiling Jesus Christ. Hi, welcome to another edition of the Unveiling Jesus Christ podcast. I'm John Cassinet, and I, as always, will be your host for this podcast entitled Book of Revelation Structure. However, I like to affectionately refer to this podcast as the Support Your Local Sheriff podcast. And the reason for that is because we're going to be talking about an oldie but goodie from 1969 that starred James Garner as a man who is on his way to Australia and en route he stops off in a gold mining town to see if he can't do a little prospecting. He realizes that uh, the job of sheriff is uh, open and uh, so he applies and uh, ultimately uh, gets the job. Now, one of his first acts is to arrest Joe Danby, who, before uh, James Garner had become the sheriff, had witnessed Joe murdering a man in the local saloon. And so after he was hired, he's having a conversation with uh, Mayor Perkins, starred by uh, Harry Morgan. And uh, he's telling the mayor that uh, he's going to go ahead and arrest Joe Danby, which is kind of an idea, according to the mayor, takes a little bit of getting used to. <laughs> and that's because the Dambies uh, were a group that uh, kind of ran the town and uh, were the lo- local mafioso. And uh, in Book of Mormon terms, they were a secret combination, I guess you'd say. But at any rate, so uh, <clears throat> the sheriff tells the mayor that he's going to go arrest uh, Joe Danby, And he also tells Mayor Perkins that I expect all the law-abiding citizens to back me up. And uh, Harry Morgan replies, oh, they will, Sheriff, they will. Well, maybe not all of them right at first. (laughs) He starts backpedaling real quick. And so the reason I tell you about this scene from uh, Support Your Local Sheriff is because even though the name of this podcast is the Book of Revelation structure, it's maybe not all right at first. There's a few things we have to do before we're going to get to a discussion about the structure of the book of Revelation. And so before I get to the the structure itself, we first have to address two fundamental questions. And, and this is why we're going to go down this uh, support your local sheriff route for a little while. In other words, we're going to take care of some other things first, and then eventually we'll get around to it. Um, so the two questions are, what difference does the structure of the book of Revelation make? In other words, how, what, what do I care if I understand what the book of Revelation structure is? And I think the best analogy to answer that question is the old uh, analogy about the forest and the trees. Before you can focus on the individual trees, which would be the symbols and apocalyptic images presented by John in the book of Revelation, we first have to understand the lay of the land and really understand the forest as a whole before we get to looking at the individual trees. And part of the problem is, is if that you focus on specific verses, specific images 
in the book of Revelation without understanding their surrounding context, <clears throat> a lot of times what happens is you misinterpret them. You get them in the wrong time frame. They're not in the right context. And consequently, a lack of understanding about the fundamental structure of the book of Revelation leads to a misunderstanding and misinterpretation of what the verses actually mean. Now, after understanding that concept, the next fundamental question is, what do I care about the forest or the trees in the book of Revelation to begin with? In other words, what is the Revelation uh, relevance? And uh, the answer lies in the support your local sheriff analogy. That is, we're going to get there, just not, not all at first, all right? And so we, we're going to answer the fundamental question of how the book of Revelation is relevant today. Now, as you know, I'm a lawyer. I, I litigated cases for almost 35 years in either in the Marine Corps as a judge advocate or when I was a uh, trial attorney in Sacramento, California. And the first lesson that you learn when you're trying to present evidence in a trial is the evidence doesn't come in if it's not relevant. And so a lot of times somebody would be presenting some evidence through a witness, through a document, or whatever, and uh, an objection is raised. Objection, Your Honor, relevance. And uh, the judge kind of looks at it and uh, makes a decision. If it's relevant, it's going to come in. If it's not relevant, he's going to exclude it. Uh, but sometimes it takes a little bit of an explanation because sometimes you say, objection, Your Honor, irrelevant. The, the judge then looks at the opposing counsel and says, counsel, how is this relevant to what are the issues in this case? And so that person gives a little bit of an explanation. The judge says, hmm, he says, okay, uh, that sounds plausible. I'm going to let the evidence come in. And so that's what we have to do in connection with the book of Revelation. We have to ask ourselves the fundamental question of how is it relevant to me today? And I'm suggesting to you by using the support your local sheriff analogy that it's going to take a little bit of an explanation, but I hope that through the course of this explanation, you'll come to understand both why the book of Revelation is relevant in your life today and also specifically how the structure of the book of Revelation is important to you in your life today as you go about your busy lives. You know, as I, as I was looking into this, uh, this issue about the relevance of the book of Revelation, I, I went back and I, I kind of looked at some statistical information about uh, the beliefs of Americans in the Second Coming in general. In 1983, there was a Gallup poll that was done where 62% of the Americans said they had no doubt that Jesus will come. Now, there weren't a lot of details given about what that statistic really means, and I have to kind of interpolate just a little bit. Um, and conclude that when they say 62% have no doubt that Jesus will come, that's probably mostly Christian Americans. If they're not Christian, they don't accept the idea that Jesus is ever coming. So the 62% we assume are uh, predominantly Christians who happen to be Americans because that's what the poll pertained to. Well, in 1994, a similar poll was taken by uh, 
U.S. News, and uh, they concluded that the percentage had dropped slightly to just 61% that believed that Jesus was going to come again. I, I suspect if uh, I were a statist statistician that uh, my conclusion would be is that probably not statistically significant. That's pretty close. Well, in 2023, the Pew Research Center did a poll, a similar poll, and by 2023, only 55% of Americans believe in the Second Coming. So that's a fairly significant drop uh, in the last quarter of a century. We've dropped six percentage points uh, from 1994, and uh, people no longer believe in the Second Coming, which is, I think is kind of a commentary um, on uh, where religion is going today in general. And I, I suspect for anybody who kind of uh, looks at these kinds of things, watches uh, mainstream media reports about what's going on in religion today, generally there's a significant drop-off in people who are churchgoers. And so this probably comes as no real surprise. The reason I think it's uh, telling is because Ultimately, the book of Revelation is a book that focuses on the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's why I kind of put a lot of emphasis on this notion about the unveiling of Jesus Christ. It's not just unveiling Jesus Christ in our individual lives, but it is the unveiling that will ultimately occur at the time of his second coming. And so what it's saying essentially is if we have 55% of the population that believes in the second coming, it means we have the other 45% that doesn't. So for that 45%, the book of Revelation truly probably has no relevance to them because they, they don't even believe that Jesus Christ would come again. So why should they possibly even spend their time reading a book such as the book of Revelation where that is the majority of what it talks about as we go through the pages. So with that in mind, let me now turn to my illustration. So this is my explanation, if you will, of me being in court and the judge asking me how is the book of Revelation relevant to our lives in our society, to those of us who are the 55% believers in the second coming? And so my response is, Your Honor, uh, I'd like to use the Israel-Hamas war in 2023 as an illustration of how the book of Revelation is relevant in our lives and not only how the book of Revelation is relevant but how specifically the structure of the book of Revelation is relevant to uh, our lives today. And so going beyond this one step further, I've been kind of watching a lot on the coverage of the war since it began on October 7th of uh, 2023 and not surprisingly in the context of uh, modern Middle East conflicts, the question always gets asked as to whether this is Armageddon. And Armageddon, of course, is a central issue in the book of Revelation. That's what everybody's really talking about is the, uh, the book of Revelation and Revelation. That's where it comes from. And so as I was looking at some of the coverage, it's interesting, as is often the case, people are saying, is, is this uh, the start of Armageddon? For example, there was a, an author expert who appeared on one of the, uh, the uh, news reports, a guy by the name of Ari Shavit, um, who made the statement, if Hezbollah gets involved, it's Armageddon. Um, 
in an op-ed piece in The Hill from October 15th, um, the title of the piece was Hamas's March to Armageddon. So again, this, this is a frequent allusion that people make and a, a frequent reference. Um, and so to answer the fundamental question of whether or not the Israel-Hamas war in 2023 is the start of Armageddon, the short answer is no, it's not. The long answer, however, is read the book of Revelation and understand the structure, and that will give you your answer. So now, before we get to a discussion of the structure, I wanted to give a little bit of background as to the uh, the history of the current conflict, because it's not only the information that you find in the book of Revelation that answers the question of whether or not this is Armageddon, but history can also serve as a guide. And it's important in your interpretation of the book of Revelation that you don't ignore what has happened historically, because that can be a looking glass into understanding the future. So I'm going to kind of quickly go through some of the key events that have led to the current conflict and some of the other conflicts that have existed between these same parties. And I'm not going to go all the way back to Abraham and talk about the covenant of Abraham and who really was promised this land. We're going to start in 1917 with the end of the First World War when the Allied powers succeeded in uh, defeating the Axis powers, and it was time to basically chop up the Ottoman Empire, which is the uh, empire that existed for a long period of time and is the place where Palestine is located. So in 1917, after the Allied powers prevailed, there was a declaration set forth by the United Kingdom. It's known as the Balfour Declaration, where the United Kingdom took the position and offered its support for the establishment of a national homeland for the Jewish people. Now, that had a lot of problems. Uh, there's a lot of Palestinians uh, who claim the land, and simply bringing the Jewish people back in there, you can obviously appreciate that that was a source of great conflict and confrontation. So, Fast forward about 30 years to 1947, the United Nations then voted to partition Palestine into two states, a Jewish state and a Palestinian state. And this was a solution that was rejected by the Arab states. And when the Arab states rejected the concept of a two-state solution, the British basically kind of they do a Pontius Pilate kind of wash their hands of the situation and say, well, we're going to uh, conclude our mandate and we're leaving Palestine the following year on May 15, 1948. And so that was going to be the end of the British mandate. Well, on the eve of that May 15, 1948 date, Israel declared its independence, and uh, that resulted immediately in the uh, several Palestinian and Arab countries in the area attacking um, the Jews, and it included Egypt, Iraq, what was then known as Transjordan, and Syria. 
So we have essentially what was the uh, the war of independence for Israel, similar to the Revolutionary War that was fought in uh, in America, and uh, they're very similar, and also in the sense that they were wars that should not have been worn won by the party declaring its independence. That is, Israel should not have won that war. If you put all of the uh, chips and players and look at the chessboard and see what pieces are in play, um, the Israelis were significantly outnumbered, but this was an important step in the uh, process of uh, the Lord fulfilling his promises to his covenant people, and so Israel ultimately prevailed in the war, and uh, by 1949 they eventually all signed an armistice agreement that actually ended up giving Israel more land as a result of the war than what the UN partition plan had contemplated. At the same time, it expelled from uh, the area that the Israel Israelites, the Israelis, um, what they had taken in property, 700 Palestinians were expelled from that, or about 85% of the Arab population, and uh, there's been no return of uh, all of those people, but another 15% remained. The Palestinians refer to this as the Nakba, which means the catastrophe that uh, this had occurred. And an interesting side note, um, I, I represented a, uh, a gentleman who uh, was from Jordan and a Palestinian in a case a few years ago back in uh, Sacramento. It was a it was just kind of a, an interesting case about uh, he was uh, a merchant selling uh, Middle Eastern goods, specifically a lot of rugs that were made in the Middle East, and he had an, a nice little shop that he was leasing. And uh, one day the uh, the roof kind of caved in and got a lot of rain and, and did some damage to some of his goods and this problem was compounded by the fact that um, when they came in to do the repairs it was an old building and they caused uh, asbestos dust to be spread throughout the building and so in addition to the rain damage there was an, asbe an asbestos problem and uh, so it, it blew up into a much bigger mess than it needed to be uh, and so that was his problem that he came to me was to uh, represent him in uh, recovering damages for uh, the loss of his property both from the the rainwater and the asbestos but here's a guy whose family was from Jordan. And so back in uh, 1949, when uh, a lot of the Palestinians were um, uh, removed and expelled from the uh, areas taken over by the Israelis, uh, I was talking with him a little about uh, a little bit about his immigration and how his family came to be here in the United States, and it came after the uh, the Nakba. Uh, had occurred back in 1948-1949 uh, and as I got to talking with him, oh by the way none of this is attorney-client privilege <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm, I'm conscious of that about my conversations that I had with him, but, uh, you know, this wasn't related to the case. This was just kind of chit-chat and stuff like that and not for purposes of, uh, of getting legal advice. But so I asked him, uh, you know, tell me about your immigration, your family, and he told me 
that his family owned 4,000 acres of land that was within four miles of downtown Jerusalem up until the time that the Israelis uh, prevailed in the war and expelled all the Palestinians, including his family. And so his family still owns this 4,000 acres. Can you imagine within four miles of downtown Jerusalem owning 4,000 acres of land? Uh, and, I, and I asked him about, well, what's going on with it? And he said, well, they've come in there. They built settlements. They've built uh, an airport, where, uh, which is part of their military structure. And uh, I says, oh, my gosh. And he says, yeah, they, the Israelis basically have a standing offer to purchase the lands of Palestinians and Arabs that were expelled from the properties, but none of them will accept any money. They won't allow the Israelis to buy the property because they want to continue to have their claim that they're entitled to get their land back. And when the Israelis buy land, but none of the Palestinians will agree to do it, but if the transaction occurs, the Israelis will buy the properties at fair market value prices today. And uh, so this 4,000 acres is worth millions and millions of dollars uh, in today's markets. And uh, his family has no interest in selling. I said, well, do you think you'll ever get the, the property? Is there any prospect that you'll ever get this property back if you don't sell it? And he said, no, there's no chance we'll get it back. But he, he, th these are these are matters of principle, you see. Um, and that's really a lot what... That kind of mentality, I think it's. I think it's great. I, I really liked him, and he was a wonderful client. Uh, but he's a very principled man. He says, "No, they wrongfully took that property from us, and uh, as a matter of principle, I may never get it back. I might be forfeiting millions of dollars that the Israelis are to pay me right now, but I will never take it." And it's the same with all Palestinians. He says. Everybody's the same. Nobody will sell the property to the to the uh, Israelis, and so these are these are strongly principled uh, people, and uh, that's a lot of what you're going to see in these kinds of conflicts. So, at any rate, moving back to our uh, discussion a little bit uh, um, after the. Uh, uh, expulsion of the uh, Arabs and Palestinians in 1949, uh, you know, this created a lot of uh, conflict, and so there are lots of skirmishes going on. But in 1964, you had what the organization of what is called the Palestinian Liberation Organization, or the PLO, that was formed under Yasser Arafat. Now, the goal of the PLO was an armed struggle with Israel to establish an Arab state in Palestine that would replace the state of Israel. And there were a number of high-profile attacks and kidnappings where essentially the PLO was trying to, to get their name on the map to get the world's attention uh, of what they had had to go through um, after the Israelis had declared their independence in 1948. So this eventually kind of leads uh, to the uh, what is called the Six-Day War in 1967. Now this war was actually a preemptive attack by Israel against Jordan, Egypt, and Syria. And uh, it resulted in the acquisition, it only lasted six days, but it resulted in the Israelis being highly successful against all of these enemies. Uh, as a result, 
Israel then began to occupy what are known as the Golan Heights in northern Israel, where they now have the current border with Lebanon. They also then occupied the West Bank, which, you know, it's, it's a little bit of an, a misnomer, really. It's what everybody understands. But the West Bank is a large area of uh, property that runs from the Jordan River, the West Bank of the Jordan River. That's where the name comes from up until uh, Jerusalem and uh, so it's a uh, it's an area that encompasses many miles um, in addition to the West Bank the uh, Israelis also then uh, won and prevailed to gain territory in the Sinai Peninsula and also Gaza and with the West Bank it also included then East Jerusalem which up until that time they didn't control and so now the Israeli owns a lot of this land and the current conflict of course is kind of centered over in what's known as the Gaza Strip. This is a, a piece of property that's 140 square miles um, and uh, is home to about 2.2 million Palestinians. And so what you have by way of the borders is you have Israel on the west of Gaza, you have Egypt on the south, and you have the Mediterranean Sea on the east. The north is also a border with Israel as well. Now when uh, they allowed the Palestinians basically to move into the Gaza Strip, they built a perimeter fence, uh, they built kind of red zones on one side of the fence that nobody is supposed to get in. They had these deep footings to try and prevent tunneling and razor wire with fences about 20 feet high. Um, and uh, th that was pretty well patrolled, but it, it had gotten obviously pretty lax by the time 2023 came around because uh, the uh, Palestinian Hamas were able to uh, come through the border area with uh, no resistance whatsoever. And so uh, there's going to be lots of talking about that for a while. The Israelis continued to occupy Gaza until about 2005, and uh, <clears throat> the Arabs uh, in the West Bank continued to be under military rule even until today. And so when Israel took control after the 1967 war in the area of Jerusalem, they also took control of the Temple Mount, but subject to what is called the status quo agreement, the uh, Israelis uh, provide security for the Temple Mount, <clears throat> but uh, the Israelis do, don't go on the Temple Mount. And that's partly because uh, of a concern by the Israelis that they don't know exactly where the Holy of Holies was when uh, they had the uh, Temple of Herod. And so to avoid any potential danger of stepping on that sacred ground, the Israelis for a long time would never go to the Temple Mount. And so the status quo agreement kind of reinforced uh, the idea that there won't be any Jews on the Temple Mount and uh, there also won't be any prayers offered by anyone on the Temple Mount who is a non-Muslim. So th those are some of the things that kind of came out of the uh, Six-Day War. So we fast forward about 20 years to 1987. Uh, there's still skirmishes and lots of ongoing problems and everything between the Israelis and the Palestinians. But in 1987, you have what is known as the first Infatada. This was a Palestinian uprising against the occupations by Israel, both in the West Bank 
and in Gaza that came about after the Six-Day War. And this continued for several years until the signing of the Oslo Accords in 1993. And during the course of the first Infatada, there were about 200 Israelis killed and about 2,000 Palestinians killed. And those kind of lopsided numbers are pretty much consistently what happens when we get into these uh, serious conflicts between the Jews and the Palestinians. Um, in the wake of the, uh, the Oslo Accords, uh, Hamas formed uh, and went into an alliance with various Palestinian groups and uh, their founding covenant is the destruction of Israel. And so because of the nature of their stated purpose, they've long been considered a terrorist group by the United States, the United Kingdom, and many other nations. But they came into existence at the time of the first infatata. And this is also uh, something that strengthened Arafat's hand with the Palestine Liberation Organization in negotiating for a two-state solution, including the idea or concept of uh, will exchange peace for land. And so that's kind of what happened in the first Infatata. Now in 1993, as I mentioned, uh, you had the Oslo Accords, which resulted in the end of the first Infantata. This was a uh, something that uh, was arranged through President Clinton. They had some secret meetings between uh, Arafat on behalf of the PLO and Yitzhak Rabin, who was then the Israeli Prime Minister. And so in this uh, accord, Israel agreed to the Palestinians' right of self-determination, but it came short of actually offering or promising a two-state solution. That was kind of a uh, something that was left open for negotiations later on. The other thing that it did <clears throat> was establish the Palestinian National Authority, which provided for limited self-government by the Palestinians in both the West Bank and the Gaza Strips. And so uh, the other issues for future negotiations were going to be the status of Jerusalem, uh, the return of Arabs uh, to uh, the lands taken at the time of the Israeli independence, uh, the dealing with things like Israeli settlements and so on and so forth. Now, interestingly enough, this particular uh, accord was opposed by two future prime ministers of Israel, including Ariel Sharon and Benjamin Netanyahu is the, the current prime minister in Israel. Both of them opposed it. Uh, Rabin, for his part, who signed the Oslo Accords, was uh, uh, heavily, heavily criticized uh, in the Israeli circles, called a Nazi, and was eventually assassinated two years after he signed the, uh, the Accords. Now, fast forward again. To 2000, we have uh, meetings at Camp David uh, where the negotiations that were uh, still on the table at the time of the Oslo Accords were now taken up again, but they, they couldn't make any further progress during the Camp David negotiations, which then led to the second Invitata, which is called the Al-Aqsa Invitata. This Invitata began on September 28th of 2000. We know the exact date because on that date, 
Ariel Sharon, a Jew, of course, visited the Temple Mount, which was kind of forbidden under the status quo agreement that came out of the 1967 war. And here he is appearing on the Temple Mount at the time that he was actually campaigning to be the Prime Minister of Israel. And he eventually was uh, elected to that position. But that created all kinds of issues and uh, uh, and caused the uh, this second infatata, uh, which was a Palestinian uprising, lots of suicide bombings, um, and also uh, things uh, that were being uh, promoted uh, by Hamas, and then the Israeli retaliations. And this continued for five years at a loss of one about 1,100 Israeli lives and 3,400 Palestinian. And more than anything, it just led to a hardening of positions between the Israelis and the uh, Palestinians. But by 2005, Ariel Sharon had started to take a position, I think I, I consider it kind of a softening position, um, where he's basically saying that Israel could not continue to occupy Palestinian territories. Now, he didn't go so far as to say that uh, we needed a Palestinian state as an alternative. So he was not going back to the two-state solution, but Israel having occupation of the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, he's kind of saying, you know what, we need to uh, pull back from that. And so in 2005, he actually began make, taking unilateral steps to disengage from the Palestinians. And this included closing settlements in the Gaza Strip and some parts of the West Bank. However, Israel continued to control the airspace, territorial waters, and Israeli border crossings. Now, that probably would have continued except for the uh, unfortunate fact that in January of 2006, Ariel Sharon had a significant stroke and uh, he remained in a coma for about eight years in a continued a continuous vegetative state until he died in 2014. And so his efforts to kind of pull back and relax some of the uh, presence of the Israelis in Gaza and the, North and the West Bank kind of uh, went on hold. Now in 2006, which is the same year that uh, Ariel Sharon uh, had his stroke, uh, they have another war that breaks out on Israel's northern border with Hezbollah. And so this was up in the area of Lebanon. It began with a cross-border raid conducted by Hezbollah um, on, some, uh, on a military convoy that was uh, kind of moving close in proximity to the border. And they, they shot at and disabled a couple of, sounds like, we call them in the United States Humvees, probably something of that nature. Um, and there were five military personnel, three of them were killed, and they took two military hostages. Well, that resulted for the next 34 days in a significant war in which 165 Israelis were killed and 1,100 Lebanese ended up dead. Now, I'll mention Hezbollah because you have to understand that this is a paramilitary organization that operates in southern Lebanon and they're supported by Iran. A lot of people see this 2006 conflict between Israel and Hezbollah as kind of the first proxy war between Iran with and against Israel. 
And so because of the backing of Iran, Hezbollah is considered to be one of the most powerful militias in the Middle East. And uh, so there have been continuous and uh, not infrequent skirmishes between Hezbollah and Israel where they're each kind of firing you know rockets back and forth at each other and uh, some experts most experts suggest or indicate that probably Hezbollah has as many as 150,000 rockets aimed at Israel from uh, from the north in uh, Lebanon. And so in the current conflict, of course, uh, there's a big concern about uh, Hezbollah getting involved in creating a two-front war uh, with Hezbollah on the north and Hamas on the uh, south in Gaza. And so Israel is kind of busy right now uh, evacuating residents away from the northern border to give them a little bit of a concussion from uh, the rockets and any efforts on the part of Hezbollah to try and infiltrate into northern Israel. So those are events in 2006. Another event in 2006 was the uh, uh, Hamas control of Gaza through some elections that were held at that time. And so up until, because of it, because Ariel Sharon had started this process of withdrawing from Gaza, they were allowed to have elections and Hamas, a terrorist organization, won the elections primarily as a backlash for corruption and uh, political stagnation by the Fatah party um, that uh, was the head of the Palestinian uh, leadership and still is in the West Bank, but uh, Hamas won in Gaza in 2006, and uh, from that time, Israel imposed a very severe air, land, and sea blockade on Gaza, which has only been something that has created a lot of the unrest leading to the war that's now going on in 2023. And so when uh, Hamas took over military control of Gaza, uh, from the uh, Fatah movement or the uh, party of Mahmoud Abbas. Uh, there have been no free elections since that time. And uh, even though the Fatah party continues to control the National Palestinian Authority in the West Bank, they no longer control Gaza. And there, so there have been these deteriorating conditions, uh, deepening poverty due to the blockade. And I, I'm, I hasten to add that you have to distinguish Hamas as a terrorist organization from the Palestinians themselves. Uh, this is an organization that, as we've seen in the current conflict, is more than happy to use the average Palestinian as a, hum as a human shield. They have their um, organization headquarters and their things like that in the basements of hospitals. They have weapons caches uh, stored in uh, elementary schools where children are in classes. And so uh, they, they use the civilians to try and protect themselves. And so this is what the Israelis are, are essentially now dealing with in the current conflict. There was another conflict between Israel and Hamas in 2014 that lasted for 51 days. This uprising occurred when Hamas kidnapped and murdered three teenagers in the West Bank. In retaliation for that, Israel arrested about 350 Palestinians, including many Hamas militants, 
This then caused Hamas to begin firing rockets into Israel from Gaza. And uh, on July 8th of 2014, the Israelis uh, embarked on an operation called Protective Edge, where they basically put themselves in the position that we find ourselves today uh, in 2023, where they started firing their rockets and causing significant infrastructure damage in Gaza. Uh, and they included a ground offensive that was aimed at destroying many of the tunnels that Hamas had created in the Gaza Strip. And uh, the accounts are that the Hamas fired over 4,500 rockets into Israel, many of which are very inaccurate and end up just landing in fields, but some of them hit in population centers and uh, we're seeing some of that again today. So that brings us then kind of to the current state of affairs that uh, we find ourselves in that region of the world. Uh, one of the things that I think you need to understand that's driving this current conflict is that Benjamin Netanyahu's position is consistently that he will not accept a Palestinian state. Um, and what we're seeing also in Israel is some of the far-right parties are actually openly advocating an annexation of the West Bank. So a little bit of a reversal from the days of Ariel Sharon, where he was kind of saying, we need to back out and uh, allow the people of the Palestinians to kind of have their their own government, to be self-governing, and to, uh, to give them some lands, although he never said they should have their own state. So the, the fortunes have now reversed themselves a little bit, um, and the Palestinians uh, are, from their perspective, they have no government at all. It's an apartheid situation in the occupied territories, and uh, this is why you see a lot of the uh, conflicts with people today kind of um, supporting the Palestinians because they kind of blame Israel, saying, well, it's your own fault after having oppressed this people for all these years by occupying their territory imposing blockades on them and these types of things you're only getting your your just uh, reward um, and they failed to separate the Palestinians from Hamas and the terrorist acts of course which have occurred uh, in recent days so on October 7th of 2023 we have the uh, uh, Hamas terrorists embark on the Al-Aqsa Storm was the name of their operation. I've seen it sometimes in some places referred to as the Al-Aqsa Flood. Now the Al-Aqsa refers to the Muslim mosque located on the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Now because they have incorporated the name of that mosque into their current operation, it's generally understood and implied that they're using the name to invoke wide, a widespread call to arms against Israel. So they're really calling for a regional conflict. The, uh, the name of the Al-Aqsa Mosque was also part of the Second Infatada, um, which was a similar call to uh, rise up and to fight against um, Israel. <clears throat> So in the latest incursions that began on October 7, you have somewhere between 1,500 and 25 Hamas terrorists that 
freely enter into uh, Israel uh, through the uh, fence and over the fence um, and uh, killed about 1,400 civilians on that first day. At the same time, on that day, they fired about 3,000 rockets from Gaza into Israel, but by far the biggest casualties came from the music festival that was being held and uh, the indiscriminate killing as uh, the terrorists entered into kibbutzes and uh, other civilian locations and cities uh, where they killed and then took approximately 2,000 hostages with them back to uh, Gaza. Now, Hamas said that they received support from Iran in this uh, operation, but Iran denies any direct involvement, which is always a big question. How do you define direct, I suppose? Um, the, two, the, fate of the, the fate of the 200 hostages, of course, is currently unknown, but the, most people tend to think that they're probably located in the underground uh, tunnels in and around Gaza City, which uh, some are speculating and opining that these structures and these tunnels probably could be as many as 300 miles in length altogether. They're all kind of uh, interconnected and uh, just a massive maze of tunnels underneath the uh, the city. So the uh, Hamas justified their actions uh, because of Israeli settler violence, because of the Gaza blockade, uh, the desecration of the Al-Aqsa Mosque on the Temple Mount, um, and basically decades of uh, what they say are Israeli atrocities. So that was their justification. A lot of the experts looking at the current conflict tend to think that the uh, the real reason why Hamas um, entered Israel and induced this great provocation was because the Saudi Arabians were about to enter into talks with Israel for the normalization of relations between Israel and the Saudis, which is a more moderate Arab state, and we do a lot of dealings with uh, Saudi Arabia, and uh, the, the, their theory is that Iran saw this coming and says, well, we can't have that happen. Happen. We need to uh, have some kind of a uh, Israeli conflict where, uh, again, the Saudis will uh, come back to roost and uh, go against the Israelis because they knew that if Hamas went in there and did what they did in the magnitude of what they did, the Israelis would certainly retaliate in a very strong way, and this was going to uh, then cause the Saudi Arabians to pull back from uh, its ideas of normalizing relations with uh, Israel. But in any event, uh, the, the massacre that occurred on uh, October 7th is considered by many to be the worst massacre of Jews since the time of the Holocaust. So it's somewhat understandable, I suppose, that in the hours in after the uh, October 7th uh, terrorist attacks that Israel would vow to wipe Hamas from the face of the earth. 
and to threaten a ground offensive, which hasn't happened yet, but is probably going to happen. Um, you know, a short time, a uh, few days after the attacks, Israel cut off the food and water and electrical supplies, which uh, is, uh, a lot, has a lot of people concerned that it constitutes a, a violation of the Geneva Convention and is a war crime and uh, a lot of the bombing. And both sides are being blamed with the war crimes. Um, on October 13th, which is the Friday, is Israel drops uh, lots of leaflets over the Gaza area telling the uh, Palestinians to evacuate south of the Wadi Gaza, which is a stream kind of running um, from uh, west to, uh, from east to west, kind of a natural uh, barrier and telling them to get south of that. Uh, at the same time that Israel is directing uh, the Palestinians to evacuate to the south. Hamas is directing the civilians to stay put. In fact, they put up roadblocks to prevent the uh, civilian population from going south out of what is going to become the main battle area between uh, Hamas and Israel when it begins its uh, ground offensive. So uh, as of uh, uh, the latest calculations, it's believed that probably about 600,000 Palestinians have left northern Gaza, gone down into the southern area, and overall there's probably about a million Palestinians that have been displaced because of the attacks that are occurring in northern Gaza. On October 15th, the Palestinian Authority President Mahmoud Abbas condemned, of course, the uh, Hamas attacks, but uh, at the same time, they're taking the position that this does not mean that they have the right to go in and punish the Palestinians. And uh, uh, Mahmoud Abbas was pretty clear that he views the uh, Hamas attacks as something that does not represent the Palestinian people. President Biden, for his part, has said that Hamas must be eliminated, but occupying Gaza would be a big mistake. Um, and uh, he also reinforced that the Palestinian Authority uh, needs to have a path to a Palestinian state, which, of course, Benjamin Netanyahu is not willing to consider. So uh, the problem, of course, that we've encountered also is the humanitarian aid that has been held up coming through Egypt. The only border crossing that exists uh, outside of Israel is uh, the Rafah Gate crossing in southern Gaza into Egypt, and it has been held, remained closed for the entire duration of the war since October 7th, and there have been negotiations back and forth. They, there seems to be some agreement that uh, the goods that have been mustered uh, and collected on the Egyptian side of the border have been uh, something that uh, can come in, but uh, so far, as of my recording of this podcast, that hasn't happened, um, and so uh, it remains a problem. And they want Israel, of course, wants assurances that uh, the goods do not go to Hamas, but go only to the civilian population, which uh, can be a, a bit of a challenge, of course. Now, the the current estimates are that the death toll uh, is that uh, we have the 1,400. Uh, Israelis that have been killed and about 2,750 Palestinians have been killed, including about 470 people in a recent bombing of a hospital, which uh, 
both sides are kind of blaming on the other. Uh, Hamas claiming that Israel attacked the hospital. Israel showing video footage and audio recordings and other expert uh, uh, security issues and things like that that demonstrate that uh, the damage to the hospital appears to have been from a, uh, a, a jihad missile that misfired and returned back and struck the hospital. So, but it's created a lot of tensions in that one act alone. Uh, Hamas probably thinks is probably fortuitous because it has raised the stakes a great deal that uh, this is going to turn into a regional conflict as opposed to a conflict between just the Israelis and uh, Hamas in Gaza. So as of October 18th, uh, President Biden had visited with Israel, pledged his full support and urged restraint. Uh, Israel agreed that it would stop the bombings at the Rafah gate to allow aid to come into Gaza and agreed to the uh, delivery of aid, um, as I mentioned a moment ago. And uh, the, uh, by way of other little things kind of just going on in terms of the military presence, the United States has mo moved two aircraft carriers, uh, battle groups into the eastern Mediterranean. There's a uh, 2000 Marine, Marine Expeditionary Unit in the Red Sea. This is an amphibious unit that uh, uh, can go in and uh, kind of the, uh, the first people to go in in conflicts of this type. Biden has also pledged 100 million in humanitarian aid, which has uh, created a lot of uh, political upheaval uh, in Congress and uh, a lot of things going on. We have about uh, 350,000 reserve troops in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, who have massed on the uh, Gaza border just waiting for an order for the ground offensive to begin to uh, begin uh, cleaning out these estimated 300 miles of underground uh, tunnels. And so th that's kind of where we uh, find ourselves. Uh, back here on the home front, the, the war is uh, highly controversial. Uh, there have been pro-Palestinian protests on college campuses. We've got riots and a lot of uh, anti-Semitism in multiple cities. Uh, we've got warnings from the FBI coming out about uh, potential threats by um, Hamas or Palestinians here on the homeland and to watch out. Uh, we have uh, the social media going crazy, including praise the, from various sources uh, of the for the Hamas killings and so we have a significant uh, polarization of people and the threat of uh, regional conflict looms pretty large there's a lot of saber rattling going on between Iran Russia China North Korea and other Arab states on one side who are either aligned with Hamas or sending signals that are strongly against Israel on the other side we have the United States the United Kingdom Germany other NATO allies that uh, are uh, in favor of uh, Israel and uh, the short answer is it looks a lot like World War III is about ready to begin and so having gone through that history and looking at where we are today we come back to this fundamental question is this the start of Armageddon and uh, even though <laughs> It's not looking good. Uh, I have to remain with my answer firmly in the um, position of no. Uh, what it is, however, is like a moving trailer for the reality TV movie that will be made 
that may someday bear the title Armageddon the Real Deal. So what we're seeing today are basically scenes to that coming attraction. So uh, so let's now move into, given everything that I've told you, this, keep in mind, is an illustration of why the book of Revelation is relevant. And, and the whole world finds relevance because essentially when they start talking about this and asking questions, oh, are we headed for Armageddon? They're all referring to the uh, verse in uh, chapter 16 of the book of Revelation, which says this, this is Revelation 16, 16. He gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue, Armageddon. Well, that, that's where all this stuff comes from. So everybody, whether they consciously think about it, when they ask the questions, is this Armageddon, they're, they're all talking about the book of Revelation. And so they're making it re relevant in our time frame. It reminds me a little bit of the, uh, the, the movie that I really enjoyed, the, the Hunt for Red October, where Captain Ramius or Sean Connery was getting ready to defect with a nuclear sub that was on its maiden voyage. And the interesting thing about his submarine was it had stealth capabilities, so it couldn't be heard underwater and picked up by sonar. And Sean Connery, Captain Ramius, kind of viewed it as a first strike weapons that could only have one ending, and that would be Armageddon. And so uh, as he was getting ready to set sail on the maiden voyage, the political officer from the KJB, KGB went to his quarters and was snooping around in his quarters and found a Bible where this text from the book of Revelation, verse 16, in Revelation 16, was basically highlighted. He probably highlighted it in his seminary days. Um, and the political officer was sitting there reading it to him. And as he reads the verse to Captain Ramius, of course, they changed the Russian uh, version to English, so you don't have to listen to su watch subtitles throughout the entire movie. And, uh, you know, that's the verse that he's reading. And then uh, Ramius, of course, kills the KGB officer. And I guess the uh, thing we can learn from all that is don't snoop around in other people's scriptures, especially in their from their seminary days. They're special. <laughs> so at any rate, that's um, another illustration of how we in society today just kind of automatically accept this concept of Armageddon among that 45% of people um, who accept the second coming and this idea or concept of uh, Armageddon is kind of always just lingering there in the background. And it certainly is the case with the current conflict between Hamas and uh, Israel. But the reality of it is most people fail to recognize what Armageddon really means uh, because they fail to read everything before uh, Revelation 16, 16, and they don't understand the context because they've not taken the time to understand and distinguish between the forest and the tree. So they see this one little tree in Revelation 16, 16 saying, it's Armageddon, uh, it's going to be a big bad battle, but they don't understand the forest. And so what we want to do now is kind of talk a little bit about that forest so that we can understand uh, what the concept of Armageddon means relative to the current controversy between Hamas and Israel. Now, it's important to understand that the uh, symbols 
uh, in the book of Revelation can only be understood if the structure is first understood. And frankly, scholars who I include, uh, LDS uh, leaders, uh, the BYU types, the people that study these things and uh, have degrees in their study of uh, Near Eastern languages and all of this sort of stuff, um, everybody disagrees uh, on the, what the structure is, uh, including the fundamental question, is the book of Revelation chronological or is it non-chronological? Now, many do accept the idea that the structure is generally chronological, but then they introduce into it this concept of what they call teaching interludes. So they take the basic chronological structure and they say, but that chronological structure gets broken in this chapter, chapter 7, chapter 10, chapter 12. And so they got they interject teaching interludes and which are breaks in the normal chronological flow. Now, many of you know that I've written a two-volume book on the book of Revelation entitled The Book of Revelation Doctrinal Commentary Unveiling Jesus Christ. And in my book, and based upon my research, I take a strict chronological interpretation of the book of Revelation. So that is to say that chapter 7 and 10 that I mentioned a moment ago are an integral part of the chronological content and chapter 12 is a flashback that I'm going to talk about that uh, just a little bit more in a moment. And so um, the chronological sequence is often misunderstood because the people aren't first looking at the trees before they start, or they're not looking at the forest before they start looking at the trees. And so people go into the book of Revelation, they see a tree, and they say, this is what this tree means without really understanding the forest. And if you don't understand the forest, that becomes a problem because many trees have more than one meaning. They can be dualistic, is what we say. They have a dual fulfillment. Sometimes the fulfillment is in the past. Sometimes the image uh, is something that gets fulfilled in the future. Something really easy, just to illustrate this point, is we talk a lot about bad Babylon. But when we talk about Babylon, everybody understands and appreciates that there was this thing called ancient Babylon that becomes a foreshadow or type for the modern Babylon that exists in the world today. So that, that that's the concept we're talking about is how a single word such as Babylon can have multiple meanings depending on the context. So it's a tree, but if you don't understand the forest, then sometimes you misinterpret the meaning of that tree. Now let me give you an example from the book of Revelation itself. And to do this one, we're going to go to Revelation chapter 14 verses 6 and 7. And, and this is going to be uh, a couple of verses that are pretty familiar to uh, members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And they're uh, verses 6 and 7 in Revelation 14. And the first of these two verses says, And I saw another angel fly in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach unto them that dwell on the earth, and to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. Familiar to most of us. I, I think everybody kind of, oh, yeah, that's, that's talking about Moroni. That's why he's up on top of a lot of our temples, because uh, he's the guy that is the uh, other angel that flies through the having the everlasting gospel. And that was proclaimed 
when Moroni, as a resurrected personage, came to Joseph Smith on the eve of September 21st and 22nd of 1823 and told the prophet Joseph that the everlasting gospel was about to be restored to the earth. And so he's the one that we kind of recognize as having declared the prophecy, um, which comes, which relates to this particular verse. Now, let's notice what it says in the next verse. It says in verse 7, this is again this other angel who's flying through the midst of heaven saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is come and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. All right. Now, that particular part of the verse talking about the hour of judgment is come that's still future. That's that's a direct reference to the judgments that will be associated with the second coming. So while as Latter-day Saints, we recognize that there is uh, a part of this uh, prophecy in John's vision that relates to an event that already happened in the past with the coming of Moroni and the introduction of the everlasting gospel. It is a truism that until the gospel is preached unto every nation, kindred, tongue, and people, we can't have the second coming. And so now this proclamation made by the angel in Revelation 14 is actually, actually a declaration where the angel is now saying, even though it's still prophetic, about something that's coming in the future, he's basically saying that the prophecy of the everlasting gospel going forth has been fulfilled, and so now we can have the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so this is an example where you have to understand the context. Now, significantly, and I'm going to be reiterating this a couple of times, significantly, this comes in Revelation chapter 14. So a lot of events leading up to chapter 14, which are chronological in their nature, have to happen before this angel shows up and says, okay, we're ready for the second coming because now the gospel has gone forth as prophesied. So, uh, and I'm going to touch on this again. So if you're not quite catching the connection, you'll get it because I'm gonna to touch on it again in a moment or two. The main point to understand is here we have in these two verses, a tree. If you don't understand the forest and the context of these verses, you might make the mistaken assumption that, oh, he's just prophesying about Moroni and that was fulfilled back in 1823. Well, not so fast, not so fast because it's still something that will be declared to have been fulfilled prior to the time of the second coming. And so that's that's the main thing that you need to know. Now, I'm going to give you one other illustration um, that uh, kind of demonstrates this point. If we go to Revelation chapter 11, verse 8, and in this chapter we have a reference to the two witnesses that are going to minister in Jerusalem in the three and a half year period just before the second coming of Jesus Christ. And so they minister for three and a half years. They then are killed and their bodies of their dead bodies lie in the streets of Jerusalem 
for three and a half days. The, uh, the Gentile nations won't even allow them a proper burial. And so they just lay there in the streets for three and a half days. And after three and a half days, they then are resurrected. And uh, that marks the beginning or nearly the beginning of the second coming when the Savior comes again. And so they're, they're very close in time. So that's the context of this verse. But listen to what it says here in 11.8. It says, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And so here you have John in this particular tree or verse introducing the concept that the two witnesses will die. We know they die in Jerusalem, but he's saying they die in what is spiritually known as Sodom and Egypt. And so what that essentially means is you have to go back in time to understand what happened to Sodom and what happened to Egypt and those events then become typological events of what happens when these two witnesses are killed in Jerusalem. And so it's just another example of how the Things that are recorded in the book of Revelation can have a dualistic meaning, and much of the understanding that you glean from what John says is based on events that happened long in the past, going all the way back into the Old Testament times. And so that's just something that you need to, uh, to keep in mind. Now, I'm going to give you another example, but this one's a little bit different. So I'm going to talk about a couple of verses where you have multiple references in the book of Revelation to what appears to be the same event, but in two different places in the book of Revelation. Now, if you're following my rule, the rule is that the revelations occur uh, in uh, sequential and chronological order. Now, there's a corollary rule that I also adhere to and believe is a correct interpretation of John's writings, and the corollary rule is that he doesn't repeat himself, right? Now, that's not to say that he won't talk about the same things on several occasions, but almost always his repetition of the same narrative is to include additional detail that was lacking in a prior reference. So essentially, the book of Revelation proceeds chronologically, and John does not repeat himself unless it's only for the purpose of adding additional detail to what he may have already introduced. So now, we come to Revelation uh, chapter 19, and this is going to be in verse 7. And this is what it says. Now, keep in mind that Revelation chapter 19 is devoted wholly to a discussion of the second coming. And so the context, the forest for this particular tree is going to be the second coming. And here's what it says in uh, 19.7. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come and his wife hath made herself ready. So this is a common allusion about the fact that Jesus is the bridegroom, his righteous saints are his bride, and at the time of the second coming, uh, they get married, um, and uh, that's what is being referred to here in Revelation 19.7. So he's overcome all things, they've overcome all things, and are worthy now 
for uh, their marriage to uh, to the Savior, uh, metaphorically speaking. All right. Now that's in Revelation 19:7. Now we come to Revelation 21, verses 1 and 2. Now keep in mind things are supposed to be proceeding chronologically. All right. And so in verse 20, 21, 1 and 2, it says, "And I saw a new heaven and a new earth." Now. I have to pause here for just a second because that's another concept where we all understand at the time of the second coming, uh, there's going to be this new heaven and this new earth. The earth is going to be transfigured. It will be renewed and receive its paradisiacal glory such as existed at the time before the fall in the Garden of Eden. And so you have this renewal, new heaven, new earth. That sounds all pre-millennial and second coming kind of stuff. Okay, but the problem is we're now reading in chapter 21. And guess what happens in chapter 20? In chapter 20, we have things like the millennium. We have the resurrection. We have the little season that comes after the millennium, the thousand year millennium. So chapter 21, again, looking at the forest, chapter 21 deals with post-millennium events. And so unless John has, you know, kind of gone way off and uh, off on a tangent here and is go going contrary to my stated rules, he basically is talking about a premillennium event in a chapter that is written for events after the millennium. And I say, no, it doesn't happen. You, you can't break the rule. Okay, so what we knew, know is that when he starts out in chapter one saying, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, the new heaven and the new earth that he is there referring to is the celestialization of the earth after the millennium after the earth dies and when the earth is resurrected then we get a new heaven so sometimes these terms new heaven and new earth it can refer to either pre-millennium at the time of the second coming or post-millennium after the earth dies but not both and sometimes people confuse them and for example somebody will be talking about uh, the second coming the transfiguration regeneration of the earth at the second coming what do they cite as authority for uh, the discussion of a new heaven and new earth they cited in chapter 21 but that's wrong because that's that's post-millennium all right so this is another little illustration but that's not really the one i'm trying to make so getting back on topic here he says in verse 21, in chapter 21, verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, i.e. celestial, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away, and there was no more sea. And I, John, saw the whole holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Okay, did you catch that? That was a lot of... <laughs> There's <laughs> a lot of words to get to the point that's made in the last few words, and that is in verse 2, we have John again referring to this bride who is adorned for her husband, who is the Savior. So now it sounds like he has repeated himself in two separate places. In Revelation 19:7, he said that there was to be this marriage of the Lamb, and the wife hath made herself ready, and now Two chapters later, he's back at it again, talking about the fact that the bride is prepared and adorned for her husband. So a lot of people, well, he's just repeating himself. It's the, it's the same thing. 
but it can't be because they're separated by two chapters and a lot of events in between, including the millennium and the little season that happens after the millennium. And so this is why if you don't understand the context and the chronological context and the structure of the Book of Mormon, you can repeatedly misinterpret what the symbols are. And so we're going to go into these things in more detail and talk about the differences between the bride at the time of the second coming and the bride at the time of the celestialization of the earth. But, you know, it's going to take like 20 chapters to get there so you got to be patient and patience is a virtue all right and so we'll get there but uh, hold on to your horses okay so now another concept that you need to understand are that uh, as I mentioned John does not repeat himself uh, just for the sake of repetition uh, what he does however is he will give you some information about a topic and then he will come back to it adding more detail to it each time that he refers to it again and the second coming is a, an example of this so when you get to Revelation chapter 11 the last five verses of that chapter are an introduction to the second coming, but it's only five verses worth. It's like, that's nothing at all. He does. He basically tells us about this vision that he sees in heaven and this these very scant details that make it clear, I'm talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ, but it is only introductory. It comes up again in Revelation 14, where more details are added, where he adds a lot of information that I'm going to talk about here in just a minute. It then comes up again in Revelation chapter 16. And finally, we get all of chapter 19 that is the full unfolding of the second coming of Jesus Christ and a lot of details, his marriage to the, his bride, the marriage supper that is then held, which occurs in the New Jerusalem in Zion, where the Christ descends with his bride and the saints and they all enjoy uh, a nice supper together before the other events of the second coming then culminate uh, uh, on the Mount of Olives and the world in general. All right, so that that's how this kind of works. That's the structure. He'll give you a little thing to nibble on and then he'll come back. I liken it kind of when, uh, you know, I'm litigating cases and you're going to make your closing argument and the, the general rule of what you do in a closing argument when you're trying to make your case to the jury is you, you start out your closing argument by telling them what you're going to tell them. Then you tell them the story and summarize the evidence of the case. And then once you've summarized all the evidence in the case, you then repeat and tell them what you just told them. So it's like three times you're going to hear what you're going to hear, what you hear, and then what you just heard. And you hope <laughs> most of the time it works, but sometimes it doesn't. Um, you, you convince the jury of the correctness of your case. And that's a little bit of what John's doing in, in a little bit of an advocate uh, way. And so... The other thing, I'm going to talk here in just a moment about the various divisions of the book of Revelation. Something that's very important in the, uh, the book of Revelation that you need to also understand is this business about the seven seals. And I'm going to talk about them in more detail when we have time in another podcast. But you have the idea or concept of these seven seals. They have seven trumpets. You have seven vile plagues. Um, 
just so that you understand, you have seven seals that represent uh, the seven periods of the Earth's temporal history being 1,000 years each. And so you go through the seven, and when you get to the seventh seal, which is the period of the millennium, starting at the second coming, or a little bit before the second coming, um, and then throughout the millennium, but as that seventh seal opens, all of a sudden, John expands the details of the seventh seal with seven trumpet angels. And these seven trumpet angels have seven plagues that uh, I call trumpet plagues. And so you go one, two, three, four, five, six plagues of trumpet angels and things are bad, things are happening. And then you finally get to the seventh. And when that seventh trumpet angel sounds and you get the seventh trumpet plague, it, it blows up again uh, geometrically by seven. So that the seventh trumpet plague becomes seven vile plagues. And when you finally get down to the seventh vile plague, so it's going to be the, the seventh vile plague of the seventh trumpet angel of the seventh seal. And when you reach that point, voila, we have the second coming. <laughs> so it's, it's a complex and fascinating structure uh, to get us to the point of having the second coming. But that's one of these fundamental structure things that you have to understand. And there are people that get them confused and say, well, we think that the uh, seven trumpets are really the, the seven vile plagues. They're, they're really one and the same thing. And they're, they're just completely missing the boat because although one is a foreshadow of the other, they are by no means the same thing. And so that's another little structural issue that we're going to talk about a little bit more. Now, another thing, I mentioned I'm going to talk about the divisions in the book of Revelation. And again, this is an area where uh, scholars are not in agreement as to how the book of Revelation breaks down into various divisions. Now, this can have an important consequence because if you say, for example, that the book of Revelation is made up of three or four divisions, it turns out there's a bunch more. It means they're lumping things into one division saying these things have common elements or things in common. Turns out they really don't because you've jammed them all into a division uh, that they don't belong to. And so scholars typically divide the book either in two uh, three, four, or even seven main groups or divisions. Um, and these various divisions, depending on how they are established, tend to lead to these uh, chronological interruptions that they call interludes because you have a division and all of a sudden there's this thing that the reality of it is people don't understand why John changed his flow and his flow of thought and his narrative. And so the only th way they can kind of explain it is, oh, this is an interlude. Uh, and because I don't subscribe to the idea of interludes, it's easy to see where the proper divisions should and do exist. And so uh, I believe that the book of Revelation has 10 natural divisions without interludes between them. And I'm going to run through those kind of quickly, uh, just so that you'll have a sense of, again, what the structure is. So the first division is basically going to be chapter 1 in the book of Revelation. This is also known as the prologue 
to the book of Revelation. The last chapter in the book of Revelation is called the Epilogue, and not surprisingly, uh, there are different divisions because they're far separated between each other. One is something to introduce you to the topic. The other is like my closing argument to tell me, here's what I just told you. And so that's what you get in the epilogue in chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. Now, so that's division one is the prologue. Division number two uh, consists of chapters two and three in the book of Revelation. This it contains the uh, the letters that John wrote to the seven churches in Asia, which offer encouragement and repeated admonition to saints, not only for those people living in his day, but the saints that uh, live in our time as well. And so these are important messages for people in our time to read. Now, we then go to division number three, which is chapters four and five. These chapters contain John's vision of the celestial paradise in the post-mortal spirit world as of 96 AD. Now, I said that the, the book is going to be chronological. If you don't accept that the book is chronological, then you might come up with all kinds of different ideas about what he's really talking about. But John's vision occurred in 96 AD, and in verse 1 of chapter 4, he sees this door open into heaven, and a voice is telling him, here's some things that are about to happen. So that places in time the, uh, the idea that he's looking into heaven. Now, it can't be the celestial kingdom because that's not going to happen until chapter 21. If everything is chronological, we can't assume <clears throat> that John is talking about the resurrected earth and the celestial kingdom in chapters 4 and 5 because it's not time yet. There's too much that has to be done, all right? And so we place that in its proper time period and recognize that, oh, he's looking into to paradise and the spirits in paradise. And the trees, once you start looking at the trees, you'll see that it's, it's very consistent. Now, the other thing that John does in chapter 5 is he introduces the concept and the imagery of this book that has seven seals. And I referred to that a moment ago. Each seal represents a 1,000-year period of the Earth's temporal history. So that he sees that images, but those things don't start to open. That doesn't happen until the next chapter, which, guess what? That's where the next division starts, as we've seen this image and vision of paradise. Now, let's get to the book and to the seven seals, and that starts out division number four, which are chapters six and seven. Now, in these chapters, the, the seals begin to open, and it's kind of interesting because in Revelation chapter six, the first 11 verses are devoted to the uh, opening of the first five seals, or 5,000 years worth of history, are covered in 11 verses. And the majority of those is actually the fifth seal, which was the time in which Jesus lived. So then starting in Revelation chapter 6, verse 12, and then continuing through the end of chapter uh, 7, which is a total of 23 verses, we, we get the period of time covered by the sixth seal, which is the time in which we live. This is the latter days. That's the sixth seal. And what we learn from John's writing is that the sixth seal is going to end with this great earthquake that's going to be, you know, more powerful than anything we've seen. Um, and 
along with that, we're going to see the sun turning dark. We're going to see the moon as blood. Stars are going to be falling like uh, unripe figs, the, the shaken and uh, things like this. And you get down to the very end of chapter six and the question is asked, who's going to be able to stand? This gets answered in chapter seven where we learn about the restoration of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see lots of temple work going on, the sealing of the 144,000, and all of these things are going on in the sixth seal, which is the urgent work that we're now doing. And President Nelson is building temples like crazy to make sure that we get our work done before the seventh seal begins. When? In chapter 8. All right. Again, all chronological. All right, so now we come to division number five, which is chapters eight through 11 in the book of Revelation. And in this one, we have the opening of the seventh seal. And the seventh seal begins with silence in heaven. And then we get the first four trumpet angels. Remember how I said you have seven seals, but when you get to that seventh seal, boom, it explodes wide open with seven trumpet angels. And so chapter eight is devoted to the plagues associated with the first four trumpet angels. Then you go to chapter nine, and now we come to the fifth trumpet angel, which is also known as the first woe, okay? And uh, a woe means really bad things. You don't want woes, all right? Um, and essentially, this is a time of darkening uh, spiritual things. You, it's, uh, the imagery is a bunch of locusts coming up out of the abyss, the bottomless pit from hell, all spreading over spiritual darkness and blackness over the earth. Why? Because we're preparing the world for Armageddon, and that's what happens in chapter twelve, in uh, chapter nine, verse starting in verse twelve. So the first woe, chapter nine, verses one through twelve, we get the fifth angel, which is the first woe, preparatory to Armageddon. Then, the rest of chapter nine, which is the sixth trumpet angel, also known as the second woe, you have the physical battle of Armageddon. All right, so now here's where I need to pause and go back to my support your local sheriff analogy. So I spent a lot of time talking about the current Israel-Hamas war and the fundamental question of whether the war is the start of Armageddon. And the answer can't possibly be yes because we haven't even gotten through the end of the sixth seal yet. We're still in chapter seven, and Armageddon doesn't happen until chapter nine. And what's interesting about that is when you get to uh, chapter nine, and I'm flipping to it here real quick, and you look at chapter nine, verses 15, which announces the start of Armageddon, he does it with this imagery. He says, and the four angels, were loosed, again, some tree stuff here, we'll talk about later, the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of man. That's how the sixth trumpet angel, i.e. the second woe, begins. In other words, it's supposed to begin at a specific time at a specific day, 
at a specific hour and month and year for all of this physical massacring to occur. Well, we haven't gotten there yet. We're still two chapters away. And so um, we don't need to really belabor the point, but the structure of the Book of Revelation, recognizing that it is chronological, answers that fundamental question for you, and that's how you get it. So now moving on just to kind of wrap this up instead of the, in, in terms of the structure, we have chapter 10 that comes after chapter 9, obviously, but most people say that this is an interlude chapter, and I disagree with that. Chapter 10 appears where it appears, right in the thick of the Battle of Armageddon, because it's a discussion about the great gathering of saints at Adam on Diamon. It also sets forth what is known as John's little book mission that he fulfills to prepare the house of Israel and the lost 10 tribes for the second coming. So a lot of people say, well, this little book mission, that's just, that's just way out there. It doesn't really have anything to do with Armageddon. And my position is it has everything to do with Armageddon because that mission and that ministry performed by John prepared Israel and the lost 10 tribes uh, for the gathering at Adam on Diamond that occurs when? Right at the midpoint of Armageddon. Now, you're not going to get that if you only read chapter 10. Um, you have to bring in some other resources to, to come to that conclusion, which we will do in due course. So that, that kind of gives you the sense of chapter 10. Then after we get through chapter 10, which again is focused on the midpoint of Armageddon, we then come directly into chapter 11, which discusses the last three and a half years of Armageddon. And I, I need to make this quick observation that the book, the, that Armageddon itself is a seven-year battle. You don't get that specifically from the book of Revelation. You have to go back and read Daniel uh, and some prophecies that he makes about the timing of certain things, and then it becomes clear that Armageddon is a seven-year battle. At its midpoint, we have the uh, gathering at Adam on Diamond. The last three and a half years are referred to by most people as the Great Tribulation, and that's an appropriate title. It's also the period of time when we have the two witnesses ministering in Jerusalem, and I referred to them a moment ago and read the verse of how they would die after they their three and a half year ministry is complete. They get resurrected and the time of their resurrection then ends the second woe. What is the sixth angel, the sixth trumpet angel, is also the end of the second woe and that coincides with the second coming because in the next verses, the last five verses of Revelation 11 is where John makes his first introduction to the second coming. And that's very appropriate because that's the exact timing. The timing occurs as the second woe comes to an end, that sixth angel, because the second coming is going to coincide with the seventh trumpet angel, which is also known as the third woe. But I've already warned you that when the seventh happens, the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet angel, it explodes open and we get seven more vile plagues. So now we have the seventh trumpet angel, which is the third woe, that's about to open 
and it's going to explode into seven vile plagues. And we're going to get lots more details. So what happens in Revelation 11, 15 through 19, these last five verses in chapter 11, is merely an introduction where John is basically telling, let me tell you what I'm going to tell you. That's what he's doing in his closing argument, so to speak. Okay, so that's that's chapter, that's division number five. Those are chapters 8 through 11, and you can see how they all naturally come together and are part of the same division. Division number six in the book of Revelation are chapters 12 through 14. I refer to these as the flashback chapters because just as soon as John kind of gives us a uh, introduction to the second coming, he's now going to back up with a flashback to give us the context, the full history of this earth, going all the way back to the premortal existence just to give us the context so we can understand what he is about to tell us about the second coming. And how, how do you make the connection? Well, the connection is most obvious in the war in heaven, which is dealt with in chapter 12, where Jehovah, as he was then known, has this great defeat of Lucifer in the premortal existence as the war in heaven comes to a close. Well, that great victory in the war in heaven then becomes a type and foreshadow for Christ's great victory at the second coming. So essentially, if you want to know something about what it's going to be like in Christ's victory at the time of the second coming, all you have to do is read chapter 12 of his victory over Lucifer in the premortal existence and vice versa. If you want to know something about the second coming, all you have to do is understand his victory in the premortal existence and voila, now we understand. We can see the forest and we can understand the specific trees within the forest. So that's why he gives us this flashback starting in chapter 12. And from that chapter, from the time he backs us up all the way to the church of God in the premortal existence, he then proceeds, guess what, chronologically until he goes all the way to the second coming without break. And so that is part of his structure. Now, Strictly speaking, having a flashback isn't strictly chronological, but uh, the flashback gives us the context and then it proceeds chronologically. And so we go from chapter 12, the premortal existence, we go to the, uh, the time of the establishment of the ancient church in the meridian of time, uh, Satan's war on the saints in, against the meridian church, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, we go into chapter 13 where we get the introduction of this first beast. Uh, we move into the great apostasy. We have the Renaissance. We have the Reformation. We have the restoration and the emergence of a second beast. And then he leads us right up to the second coming. The end of chapter 13 brings us right up to, but just before the second coming. And then we roll into chapter 14. So now, given the chronological status, what do you expect to see in chapter 14? I'm not even going to tell you what it is, and you already know, because I just told you that chapter 13 ends as we're approaching the second coming. And so if I then ask you, so where does, Revel where does chapter 14 begin? If they're chronological and we don't have a break in the sequence. And your answer is, the second coming? <laughs> exactly right. Okay, 
So what we have is this is where the chapter opens up with this vision that John sees. Now, leaving events on the earth and looking up in heaven, he sees these 144,000 servants standing on Mount Zion with the Savior. And this is where we get these angels. And among them is the one I read to you earlier about the angel who said that we have the angel flying through the midst of heaven having the everlasting gospel. Now you understand that chapter 14 is really a chapter, sequentially speaking, that deals with the second coming and not so much about what Moroni was doing when he visited Joseph Smith back in 1823. And so those are the events that are coming. The last thing that happens in verse four, in Revelation 14 is you have this sequence of harvest angels that are coming through where you get the first harvest that precedes the second coming. So what's happening in those verses, and a lot of people confuse this. They say, well, you've got this happening. We, we hear about this wine press over here. We run into it again. Keep in mind the chronological structure. This is just the beginning of the harvest of exaltation-worthy saints on the one hand, wheat and the tares, exaltation-worthy people get taken up, which is really nice to know because if you're exaltation-worthy, you get taken up. So guess what you don't have to face? You don't have to face the seven remaining vile plagues that are about to hit the earth. You get taken up, and so you hang out there with the, the Savior as his bride on Mount Zion in heaven, just having your marriage and all of this that we talked a little bit about, and getting ready for the second coming to occur. Uh, but in the meantime, you're up there. The other harvest that happens just immediately before the second coming is going to be the harvest of the worst of the worst, the sons of perdition, <clears throat> the ones that he's going to tread in the wine vat and wipe them out, all right? And that's all part of the the flashback chapters. That's what where we find ourselves at the end of chapter 14, and we've now worked ourselves back again to the second coming. So now that we're at the second coming, what's next in chapter 15? Now, the thing that we know that lies ahead of us is, well, I, I still got these seven vile plagues. I got this third woe that we still have to deal with. It hasn't happened yet. Well, guess where chapter 15 begins? Chapter 15 begins with the first vile plague opening. And you see the seven of them come out of the temple of heaven, and then one by one, and these happen in very quick order. So even though the second woe, which is the sixth trumpet angel, was a seven-year battle of Armageddon, guess what? The third woe is very short. It happens very fast commotion of all things kind of stuff because everything is happening happening in such rapid succession that uh, you can't really keep up with them but this is the end of physical armageddon it's also the start of the spiritual cleansing of the earth now stop and think about this concept i'm going to tell you that essentially you have a situation in which you had physical armageddon where you're wiping out the bad guys and you have a spiritual cleansing of the earth where you got to wipe out this the evil spirits that exist in the world today nobody out there at least that i can tell is dividing armageddon into a physical armageddon that we read about in chapter 9 and the spiritual armageddon that occurs in chapter 16 and most people just say he's really just talking about the same battle twice 
And that breaks our corollary rule that John doesn't repeat himself. And so when you try and understand what he's talking about and recognize that he's not simply repeating himself, it becomes immediately obvious. And you look at some of the trees specifically, you can tell that a portion of chapter 16 is devoted to a discussion of what I call spiritual Armageddon and the need for the spiritual cleansing of the earth against evil spirits. You stop and think about the concept. I mean, how impossibly... How could we possibly have the second coming where the earth is being cleansed uh, of all of the telestial people? we got to wipe them out. You can't continue to live if you're uh, uh, telestial or uh, sons of perdition. <clears throat> and all of these mortals, we got to get rid of them. But what about all the evil spirits, the ones that were kicked out here at the time of the creation of the earth? we got to get rid of those guys, too. So there has to be a spiritual Armageddon uh, just as well as there is a physical Armageddon. And that's what happens in chapters 15 and 16 um, with these uh, seven vial plagues. And that's division seven in the book of Revelation. Then you have division number eight, which is chapter 17 through 19 in the book of Revelation. These chapters are actually devoted to the last three vial plagues of the seventh trumpet right or the seventh trumpet angel and so uh, these include the fall of the uh, great horror of false religion in chapter 17 the physical fall of modern babylon which kind of focuses more on the secular side of the house if you will um, and then chapter 19 which is wholly devoted to kind of a wrap-up and conclusion of all of the final events that relate to the second coming of Jesus Christ. That's division number eight. Finally, we get to division number nine, which is chapter 20, that essentially describes the millennium, various stages of the resurrection after the second coming, when Satan will be bound. That is then followed by a description of the little season of wickedness that will exist after the millennium. And the final battle of Gog and Magog will be fought right up to the end of the earth, and the, uh, the death of the earth by fire and its subsequent resurrection, leading you then to division number 10, which begins in chapters 21 and 22. And in these chapters, the earth is now resurrected. It becomes the celestial kingdom, followed by John's final blessings, admonitions, and benedictions in the epilogue, as I kind of mentioned uh, a moment ago. So having gone through all of the structure, the divisions, uh, trying to explain the context of the forest that we're dealing with that we call <clears throat> the book of Revelation, I hope that helps you understand how we can now say by looking at the Israel-Hamas war in 2023 that, yeah, this, this really can't be uh, the start of Armageddon. We're not there yet. Um, now, it doesn't mean that there uh, isn't some relevance between uh, Armageddon on the one hand and the current uh, difficulties we're having with the uh, Hamas-Israel war in 2023. And for that, let me just quote from the uh, 87th section of the Doctrine and Covenants, which is known as Joseph Smith's prophecy on war given on December 25th of 1832, where he basically described how uh, in the modern era there was going to be an outpouring of wars commencing with the Civil War 
uh, on the United States uh, homeland, and that would then proceed to other wars that would follow. And true to his predictions, there has been virtually no time since the Civil War when there wasn't some type of war occurring someplace in the world. And the Israel-Hamas war is just the latest that Joseph Smith essentially describes also in uh, section 87, verse 6, when he said, and thus, with the sword and by bloodshed, the inhabitants of the earth shall mourn, and with famine and plague and earthquake and the thunder of heaven and the fierce and vivid lightning also shall the inhabitants of the earth be made to feel the wrath and indignation and chastening hand of an almighty God until the consumption decreed hath made a full end of all nations." So this is Joseph Smith's prophecy, essentially, that uh, the Israel-Hamas war, like many others before it and others that will most certainly come after it, are uh, wars that are occurring where people are going to feel the wrath and indignation and chastening hand of Almighty God until the second coming. And then at the second coming, what we will get is we will get Armageddon. Those coincide together. The end of Armageddon, of course, is going to be the second coming. And that's what Joseph Smith describes when he says, Until the consumption decreed hath made a full end of all nations. And that's when that's going to occur. So in the meantime, what we essentially have is that uh, this is another war that is like a movie trailer of scenes to coming attractions. So the good news is that no, the, the current war is not Armageddon. It doesn't fit the timeline set forth in the book of Revelation. The bad news is it is a war and it's only going to get worse. And the wars that follow this war are only going to be worse in further worse than what the current controversy is. And so it gives you pause. Oh, how bad can it really get? And the only consolation that I suppose I can offer at this point <clears throat> is uh, something that relates back to uh, chapter 6 in the book of Revelation, which is, again, talking about the sixth seal in which we live, the seal of the latter days, um, when we get down to the very last verse of that chapter, and it's talking about the great day of his wrath has come, meaning the sixth seal is coming to a close, and we're about to enter into the seventh seal, this question is asked, who shall be able to stand? And the answer to that question is given in Revelation 7 where it talks about the restoration of the gospel, the work that occurs in temples today, the sealing of the 144,000. And so the message that John gives us in the midst of all of these, uh, the wrath of God being poured out and the, the, the wars that will lead to the consumption decreed against all nations is live the gospel and uh, do everything you can to uh, keep the commandments. Go to the temple. Be a worthy temple recommend holder and live your life as righteously as you can because you will be able to stand uh, despite all of the trials and tribulations that may exist 
that are a natural part of this war and other wars that will reach into our homeland even. And uh, that's what we need to be prepared for. And the best way that you can do it is just be the most righteous person that you can. You and the, your children and uh, your neighbors, your friends, family members. And if you can do that, then uh, that's really the good news. And uh, hopefully the last thing that I'll just say on this point is the admonitions given in the prologue and epilogue of the book of Revelation, which are you have to read it, you have to hear it, you have to understand it, and then you have to live it. And I hope that by understanding the structure that we've gone through together, you can do all four of those things and feel confident in your ability to stand when the consumption decreed is poured out upon all nations at the time of the second coming. I'll see you next week.